Hi, you're listening to your Route to Wellbeing podcast. This podcast shares strategies, insights, nuggets, and tools to inspire and support you as you step boldly towards creating the well-being that you desire and deserve. Each week, I share insights and inspiration from different people who have expertise across one or more of the 11 domains of well-being. Each one of the guests that I've chosen to talk to have found the clues through their lives and experiences, through their careers and their knowledge, that I want you to have access to. My big question is how can we all pulse with energy and truly live while we're alive? I believe that these people that I'm talking to have some of the crucial answers. So relax, listen up, and thank you for tuning in. Please remember to leave us a review and also to share this podcast with anyone in your network who you think it may help. Hi, I'm Sue Fullergood from the Energy Incubator, and it is so exciting to have with me this morning Joni Petty um, from the Resi- from Resilient People. She is the most extraordinary lady, full of energy. She is a mum, a business owner, a speaker, a coach, a facilitator, an author, a runner, and a human behavior strategist. And I think she has a lot to teach us about your route to well-being. So um, with great excitement and uh, gratitude for Joni, who is such a busy lady, it is wonderful to be able to download some of the information out of your brain, Joni, and uh, make it available to our listeners. So we're going to talk this morning a little bit about sleep, a little bit about resilience, and really anything to do with well-being that you can share with us. Um, so can I hand you the microphone and ask you to share with us a little bit about your career and your path and how you came to be a resilience and sleep expert? Yes, absolutely. And Sue, thank you. Thank you. I mean, you are the energy incubator expert. So <laughs> this is this should be fun together. Your question is a very good starting question because actually um, I began my first business and we called it the BizCom Group. And that was looking at business communication and how teams can perform. And then 16 years ago, I lost my husband to an aortic aneurysm. And um, during those very dark and alone times, I realized actually my daughters who were seven and nine at the time, that I'm going to need to role model resilience. Um, what I detested with a, a, a um, complete energetic, visceral, bodily, mentally, and emotional response was people saying to me, hey, Joni, you're a strong personality. You're going to bounce back. And there were several times I had to self-restrain from punching them in the nose and going like, actually, you never bounce back from trauma and tragedy and loss. So we have to learn to bounce forward. And that was really the birth of some thinking around resilience. And that resilience is not about bouncing back. Resilience is all about bouncing forward. And then I like to kind of counterbalance that with, you know, not everybody's suffering trauma and and loss of of loved ones. But um, it could actually even be bouncing forward to chase an opportunity. You know, what's your next one big thing? So we want to always, as humans, look at how we bounce forward. And I then did a lot of research around really how to unpack this huge and amorphous word called resilience that we overuse and abuse. And um, with the research from Six Seconds, who's the largest EQ uh, network in the world, and a company in the UK, Momentum4, the three companies got together and we researched resilience and what were people looking at in terms of measuring resilience worldwide. And then we collaborated and came up with a resilience uh, assessment, which looked at uh, mental resilience, emotional resilience, physical resilience, and sense of purpose resilience. So we're talking sleep today, Sue, and obviously sleep falls into the physical resilience. But I always say to people, you know, we if we look at a sturdy table and the tabletop is resilience. We need four equal lengths of strong legs, and that's mental, emotional, physical, and sense of purpose to have that sturdy table. 
So sleep is an integral part, but I'm glad you opened this podcast by saying we might go other places as well. Absolutely. Well, yeah, you've told us a little bit about your um, sort of exploration into resilience, but you haven't really said much about sleep. How did you become? Yes, good point. I didn't address that. So how did I come to that? Um, is that when um, Gareth, my husband, died, I uh, was put onto sleeping tablets because I could not sleep. And um, I'm not averse any medication. Uh, I'm not a person who takes anything actually normally in terms of health, but I really needed those Stillnox tablets. And I used to put my two little girls to bed at night and then just long to brush my teeth and have Stillnox. And they kept me asleep for about four hours. And then I'd wake up and, you know, that would be it. So I started researching. I just felt terrible, you know, not being able to sleep. And um, he died in September. In the December, I thought, okay, I'm going cold turkey. These sleeping tablets are, have been very helpful for three months, but they could be addictive and I'm going to go off them. So I started researching sleep and um, realizing actually that it is your superpower. And that research led to actually a really fortuitous um, meeting of Ariana Huffington. And I knew that I'd be speaking on the same stage as her in Washington, D.C. in March of 2017. And so I read her book, The Sleep Revolution. So these things all kind of, you know, came into my field um, fortuitously. And in reading The Sleep Revolution, I really enjoyed the book. I then chatted to her at this resilience conference in Washington, D.C., and she just taught me some very basic things about sleep hygiene, which I thought were fantastic. So that really got me on this, hey, you know, let, let me learn more about sleep. And then, of course, I started reading a lot uh, that Professor Matthew Walker um, wrote in his book, Why We Sleep. And then I am a podcast junkie myself. So Andrew Huberman, uh, as the ophthalmologist and, and neuroscientist, also started talking a lot about sleep. So I then launched a workshop called Sleep is Your Superpower and um, wrote a sleep ebook and then joined the World Sleep Society in America. And I am their ambassador for South Africa. So on World Sleep Day in March every year, I go on radio and TV and all magazines and really just build awareness around the fact that the World Health Organization is saying 67% of adults are not getting adequate quality sleep and quantity sleep. So that was my, my journey into actually let's really um, understand sleep and how we can harness that superpower. And it is an epidemic that uh, they say um, uh, in the world today that people are uh, walking around as half-baked zombies and yes. um, suffering weight gain, um, inflammation mm. and disease of all sorts yep. because they are in, uh, inadequately rested and they are not getting enough sleep. So can you talk to us a little bit about what are the outcomes of not getting enough sleep? Apart, mm. I've just touched on a few things, but yes. you, you know, can you shed some light on that? Because I, I think a lot of people just think you feel a bit tired, and so what? You know, sleep's a luxury, and and I can't afford to have too much of that luxury. So, uh, um, I'll start with the weight gain because that uh, really gets people sitting up and listening. Is mm. that um, we know that. If you don't have adequate quality and quantity sleep, there's a 50% higher risk for obesity. So if you're getting less than five hours sleep a night, B-bar, B-bar, um, that could be really changing the hormones in your body quite radically. And Sue, even when I get less sleep than I need to because I'm traveling or changing time zones or you know something's happening, is I do feel this need to eat slightly more. And our bodies work against us because these are the two hormones that change in your body when you don't get enough sleep that make you hungry. The first is that horrible hormone called ghrelin. So you get more ghrelin in your body that makes you hungry. And it often makes you hungry for sweet, salty, starchy food. So your body is so jolly clever as a system. It says, hey, you know, something's happening. You, you know, you haven't got enough energy in your bucket, so now you must eat more uh, food so that Greenland shoots up. And then another hormone um, diminishes 
And that's horrible because it's, our body just works against us. So that appetite control hormone leptin reduces. So you might have, um, you might say, okay, I'm going to be fairly healthy here. I'm going to have good egg on toast and maybe another slice of toast with avo because I'm still hungry after my breakfast. And then you finish that, you put your plate away and you go, goodness gracious, that's like two slices of toast, some protein, some lovely amigas and avo, and I'm still hungry. What's happening here? So it's just, um, you know, that's eating quite healthily after uh, insufficient sleep, but your body works against you um, from a weight perspective. The other thing I actually have said to a lot of my corporate clients, I've said, I would love to have a breathalyzer at your front door. So whether you're a bank and you've got 30,000 people arriving, you know, to some of those big buildings, um, I'd love you to be breathalyzed because actually your brain doesn't work very well when you've had less than seven hours sleep. So you think you're functioning fine, but there's that whole brain fog that, that sets in, which is horrendous. And you are actually, you know, what Matthew Walker has said is that it's equivalent to being drunk if you haven't had sufficient sleep. So your weight gain, your brain fog, which is really terrible. In America, they've looked at safety and driving cars that 6,000 car crashes are caused by just, you know, drowsy people driving each year. So it has many, many impacts. Um, those are the, the two biggie ones. But high blood pressure is another big one if you suffer from high blood pressure as well. Um, and then we also actually, maybe another big one I'll mention is Professor Matthew Walker's very big at spe on speaking about the fact that insufficient sleep is carcinogenic. So it causes cancer. So the stat that the um, American Sleep Society uses is that you've got a 36% increase in collateral cancer if you have less than seven hours sleep and three times um, the risk of diabetes, type two diabetes. So the knock-on effect, our bodies are designed to sleep and we are just trading in sleep because we don't have time to do everything we need to do, trading in our health for our wealth. Mm. And we are so the only animals who do that. I mean, no yes. other animal on the planet uh, sacrifices mm. their sleep uh, in any way. Um, and, and I think it's so interesting if we think about the fact that actually, you know, nature has risked our safety and everything is programmed to keep us alive and safe in the world. And yet nature has dared to risk our safety in order for us to go comatose. It must be that important that we do that. Otherwise, nature would never take such a risk with our safety. So yes. um, so can you talk a little bit about what actually happens in our brains when we do go to sleep? What, mm. what happens in our brains and our bodies? Mm. So actually, it's really important that you ask this question, Sue, because it's. I find if you speak a little bit about the science of sleep, people then start to prioritize it. So what happens in our brain is your question, is our brain goes through four stages of sleep. So you've got stage one where you just put your head on the pillow and you're just drifting off, but a dog barks or there's a hooter or a door slams and you like, you know, you're easily aroused. So stage one, you're easily aroused. Stage two, you're kind of hearing it in the distance, but you, and, and you could sit up and, you know, do something about it, but you, you got that sort of drowsy, heavy feeling. Stage three and stage four, you're in that deep, deep sleep. Now, what happens in the brain when you're in stage three and stage four, the brain obviously does not sleep and it's very busy flushing out beta amyloid which is a plaque. Now, we are all good at brushing our teeth twice a day and flossing to get rid of plaque between our teeth. We can't, you know, floss our own brains. Our brains do that while we're in deep stage three and stage four sleep. So we absolutely need that stage three and stage four. And we go through a couple of cycles of going down stage one, two, three, four, circling up to a rapid eye movement, REM sleep, where we consolidate memories, et cetera, and then down stage one, two, three, four. So that busy brain is flushing out the toxins and that plaque. Now, if we don't do that, if we don't get stage three and stage four sleep, we are more likely to get all the diseases we've spoken about. And we do know from a brain effect, if you're getting insufficient deep sleep, there's a 33% increase in dementia risk. 
So that plant builds up over time. You can grow, as you probably know, through um, 700 to 1,000 new brain cells per day if you eat right, sleep right, and move move well. But uh, if we got plaque between those brain cells and those synapses, um, you know, we we start to develop dementia. And it's 20 years in the in the development. So you know, you could be now in your 50s, um, thinking, look, you know, I'm I'm really my career is fantastic. I've got a lot on the go, and uh, you know, by the time you're 65, 70 you are starting to really forget who's who in the zoo. And not only a, a risk of dementia, for us to be able to learn uh, and process our memories, as you've said, and, and actually I would like to add process what we need to forget so that there's space in our brains and we're not, you know, totally... Um, over swamped with information, yes. uh, we need to be able to sleep. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, whether, how learning occurs yes. uh, through sleep and how you forget when we sleep? Um, yeah. So neuroplasticity and this fantastic um, ability to grow new brain cells and those synapses to connect. Neuroplasticity only, only happens when you're asleep or you're having a power nap. So, so you deep sleep at night or you're having a power nap during the day. So the learning point is so true, Sue, is I often say to people who are studying is um, if you've just really cracked something that's quite difficult to grasp and you want to hardwire it, you know, into your hippocampus is having a power nap during the day or quick sleep is a very good idea. So you only, your memory centers only kick in when you are sleeping. So that hardwiring of that memory um, is really important. In terms of the flushing out what you don't want to learn, which is what you um, alluded to, is, you know, obviously the whole brain is, you know, the, the emotional centers and the cognitive centers. So making sense of um, emotional issues and really tough situations is, yes, the brain can start to filter out. And we know a brain that's awake and well-rested is uh, your emotional control is whole, a whole lot better. So you may not shift, you know, you may not flush out memories that are not useful. You'll still have those memories, but you'll be able to be able to use the emotional centers and the prefrontal cortex to say rationally, I don't have to take on that nonsense, you know, from that heated discussion with a friend or a loved one. I can let some of that go because they're just transferring their emotional stuff onto me. So you can be... Um, more cognizant of what to take on and what to let go. Thank you for that. So I think we can all understand that it, it's not a nice to have, to have enough sleep. It's actually a have to have uh, for our longevity, our healthy living and our thriving today. Um, but can you just discuss with us a little bit about the difference between quality and quantity of sleep? Because for some people, that's a very new idea. You know, they're saying, well, I do sleep enough uh, as they fall asleep in front of the TV. And, um, you know, I do sleep enough. So what's the problem? So let's talk a bit about quality. Yes. So let's talk about quality. I often say to people, you know, good night sleep starts the minute you wake up. So it's, um, you know, we've got to, this is a, 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 it's really is the foundation of your well-being. So from the minute you wake up, what are the things you could do to enhance your quality of sleep? So I'm going to step you through um, a whole lot of tips, Sue, and you can interrupt me as we go to expand on some or, you know, you probably know others as well. Um, but as, before we get into the quality of sleep is just quantity, minimum seven hours, maximum nine. So that's not really up for debate. Um, some people are going to say to us, um, hey, but I, you know, no, I've slept for years. I've slept five and a half hours or six hours and I feel absolutely fine. And you would feel fine, but your body is not detoxing and your brain is not detoxing the way it should do. So it's it's not up for debate quantity. It's between seven and nine. And actually, if you start to be more mindful around your body, you will know when your body needs slightly more. So I from a quantity perspective is I wake up automatically after about seven hours, 15 minutes. It's just what my body needs. But I know if I've got a scratchy throat or I'm feeling just off color, you know, or I've eaten something that's not so 
great. Then I seem to sleep eight hours. So I really know, and I actually will mindfully allow for that eight hours if my glands are up while I'm feeling like I'm you know, heading for a cold. So that's the quantity, but let's, your question was around the quality. So how do we get that stage four sleep, which is that deep restorative sleep, which is the quality sleep and what are the kinds of things that we could do? The first thing is to, when you wake up in the morning, is your brain has gone from a beautiful, um, juicy grape to a raisin. So to not to forget that your brain in this flushing out the beta amyloid that we spoke about a few minutes ago is it's reduced in size. So, you know, we often go, the first thing we want is a lovely cup of tea or coffee as we open our eyes, not a good idea. So definitely to have water um, or herbal tea so that you can rehydrate your brain as you wake up. There's also some science from Professor Andrew Huberman speaking about the adenosine um, hormonal buildup in your brain during the day, um, which many of us feel late afternoon. We've got that kind of nodding head feel. In South Africa, we call it the wildebeest nod, where you just kind of, you know, you've had a good night's sleep and you've had a good day, but you feel a bit drowsy at 2 or 3 p.m. So his uh, science lab is advocating that you don't have caffeine for the first 60 to 90 minutes after waking, so that you delay that adenosine um, onset in your brain I have found um, I've played with it a couple of ways and I haven't got it hasn't made a big difference for me I've been quite diligent about no caffeine for the first 90 minutes and um, for you know a couple of weeks and then I'll go back to caffeine it doesn't for my body I don't seem to have the adenosine uh, wildebeest not in the afternoon so I think it's you know we've also got to be mindful about ourselves so back to quality is rehydrate the brain as you wake up. And then within the first hour of waking, for sure, for, for, for sure, for sure, your circadian rhythm, where your brain now in terms of its body clock is going, okay, wake up time, cortisol, let's go, let's go. Let's be alert, you know, are the lions or tigers out there to eat us? You know, what about our safety? Is you want to get outside and you want to see that natural sunlight. And if you're living in a country where there's not natural sunlight, it doesn't matter, even if it's a cloudy day, to get outside and optimally is to go for a 20-minute walk. That's your optimal, optimal. If you can't, for whatever reason, is still to you know be on a veranda or near a window and just to look skyward and allow the brain to get circadian rhythm to get into a rhythm so that you've got natural um, light going into your eyes and uh, that's that's a great way to start to program the brain for a good night's sleep is that these early morning rituals, which are really good. Um, do you want to ask any questions about that before I go on? No, I love how you've explained it. And uh, I, I completely agree with you. You know, what you do during the day, what you do in the morning determines your day and what you do during the day determines your sleep. So, you know, I love how you're unpacking this and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about a, turning that first uh, period of your day after your glass of water and before your caffeine into a power hour of some sort of sort, which just sets the tone for your day. Mm. Um, I'll maybe just speak in the first person here of what really works for me as a power hour is I exercise seven days a week in different formats and different ways. So that power hour for me is a ritual and um, it has really helped my sleep dramatically. And my power hour is I rehydrate and I will sit and I will sometimes do a morning meditation and sometimes not, I kind of sense into it. So there's, I'm not ritualistic around it. I have always put my exercise clothes out the night before so that they're in arm's reach. So those go on no matter what, before the kettle goes on for my hot water and lemon, my exercise clothes go, go on. And invariably I will go out for a run or a walk. Um, but if I don't, I will most certainly go out onto my grass and use that power hour just to ground myself, feel grass under my feet. And I'll do some stretches and plank and some dumbbell stuff. And if I don't feel like any of that, um, playing with my dog is equally part of my power hour. So <laughs> it's it's really 
it I feel quite um uh, I've lost my word here, but I'm I'm determined that that power hour is a journey replenishing hour, as opposed to seeing what's going on in the world and you know reading up on all the wars that are going on. So I don't go onto any news twenty four. I don't go onto any social media platforms. I literally check my mobile to see if my family are okay, and then that's it. My power hours about exercise and stretching and enjoying the weather, enjoying the changes of season. And then part of that power hour, which I, I know to be hugely valuable for our brain and hugely valuable for what I call book ending your day, starting your day well and ending your day well, which is part of a sleep hygiene routine, is my morning shower and I will say my evening shower is I have a tiny habit that is programmed into um, my way of being as my left hand opens the hot tap and this is good old Professor B.J. Fogg's tiny habits work, is that's the trigger for me. The trigger as my left hand too opens the hot water tap is I say something that I'm grateful for. So it's, I'm not good at gratitude journals. I mean, that is optimal in terms of thickening your cortex. And you know a lot about that um, in terms of gratitude and how important that is for your power hour. I find that I lose my gratitude journals I, I, I've even, you know, gone as far as to say if it's really expensive and it's labeled with my name and it's so beautiful, blah, 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 I won't lose it. I don't know. I've got a gratitude uh, fairy in my house that steals my journals and they just go missing. So I've decided that I'm just going to verbalize it in my shower and I don't mind if a family member walks in and I'm talking to myself. They all think I'm a bit weird and that's just fine. But I, my power hour has to include gratitude and it can be I mean, in Johannesburg at the moment, the Bougainvillea and the Jacarandas are just sublime. <laughs> so pretty. So it's just gratitude for seeing that or gratitude. I've decided the last two mornings, not part of my power hours, also sometimes to listen to a really good podcast, invariably on the brain. And uh, the last two mornings, I thought, actually, I'm going to shake that up a little bit. I'm going to run in my neighborhood that I've lived in for 28 years to see if I can notice things I've never noticed before with nothing in my ears. So it's been a kind of like an observation little, and this morning it was four kilometers of running and lots of stopping and observing with my dog. So that power hour is very important. It's you've got to configure it out, but the important part there is whether you can, whether you can slice out an hour for yourself, I know some people can't, is you need the book end of your day you know, the start and the finish, the start has to start with some replenishing for yourself and your brain, as opposed to the giving out. You and I are in industries where we're giving out to people all day. So what is that time at the start of your day where you're replenishing and giving back in? And, and I know we haven't finished the rest of the day, but uh, if I may just add my little 10 pennies worth. Yes. You know, it's tempting to always be listening to podcasts, and, and I think they are incredibly beneficial, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be spending my time doing <laughs> one. But to have some empty brain time is also essential to our sleep, and it's it's really essential to our ability to learn and to keep our brains healthy. So um, I'm just inviting our listeners to take all the wisdom journey sharing, please, and um, and also just add this little piece sometime in the day and i love it to be in my power hour and that could be power half an hour power 20 minutes whatever it is for you but a bookend i love that word um but sometime when you can just let your mind wander it's so vital for the brain and it's so vital for, for just allowing the nervous the coil of the nervous system not to coil up too tight it needs some time to just actually unwind itself and uh, if you're going for a walk or you're sitting on the grass, how wonderful to just let your mind wander. And who knows where it wanders off to? It really doesn't matter. But it needs to be allowed to do that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, directed into yes. activity and achievement. Yes. Oh, it's too tiring. Uh, uh, yeah. I even noticed but, yesterday and today, I'm not listening to podcasts. I was thinking about... Um, the design of the brain and eyes. And I was wondering, you know, just how clever our eye movement is, because our eyes are an extension of our brain. You know, it's just 
protruding little, two little protruding holes. And I thought to myself, this whole walking forwards, and it was during a, a, a walking time as opposed to a running time, I was just thinking, I'm just going to feel these beautiful trees and everything coming past my eyes as I walk forward. And I just thought how clever, you know, we know a lot about, you know, neuro-linguistic programming and how our movements can change the brain. But it was quite a mindful exercise of just enjoying movement going past my eyes um, and just kind of having that breathing technique of focusing forward, breathing and and just, yeah, the nothingness of the what's coming past my eyes. So I completely concur with you. And it's always interesting also to self-reflect and, you know, what does percolate in your brain when you attempting to just be free of everything else? Mm. And non-productive. And thank you, Joni. And then the rest of the day, what, what else do you do? To yes, so the rest of the day. Um, back on to quality sleep is um, the big thing that is completely um, the, the hugest priority is to really look at our caffeine intake. So we know that caffeine has eight, an eight-hour half-life in our body. So to work back from the time that you want to go to sleep at night, eight hours uh, backwards into your day, when do you stop having tea, coffee, green tea? So I, um, my circadian rhythm and the consistency of that we should also talk about, Sue, is that um, I go to sleep at about half past eight, nine, because my I am a lark. So I like to, you know, go to sleep early and I wake up early. That's how my brain likes to work. And not to say that being an owl is a problem. If you go to sleep later and you don't wake up later, that's also okay. But to know yourself, good old Socrates said, knowing yourself is the beginning of wisdom. So I work back my caffeine. If I go to sleep at, at nine, I do not have a cup of coffee after 1 p.m. And that is, that's not a debate in my life. I can be having the greatest lunch with mates and, you know, lovely cappuccinos um, on offer, which I do love, but I just have this kind of internal no-no, no caffeine after one. And I've had so much pushback from various people that have been in my workshops who've said, hey, Joni, that's ridiculous. I fall asleep, drop of a hat, and I can have a cup of coffee just before I go to sleep. And I say, what well, I'd love to do um, some MRI work on you because there is no ways you are getting deep, restorative, stage four, slow wave sleep. So you may go to sleep quite well and quickly and you feel like you're having good sleep, but you're not getting that stage four, which gets rid of the, the plaque in your brain. So caffeine is a big um, uh, hook for many people and I'm not against caffeine at all. I do, you know, when I have coffee, I mean, I've got two cups here that Sue can see. I've, this was um, a lovely coffee and this is a um, a herbal drink. So I will always balance my caffeine during the day with um, water or herbal tea and be strict about that stop time at one. What is your I take? I interrupt you a little bit, yeah, because I wanted to say just first of all, don't forget tea is just as bad as coffee unless you're That's having right. water or a herbal tea. Yep. Uh, masses of caffeine and tea, almost the same amount as coffee. Um, yeah, you know, I've had a really interesting journey with coffee when I um, started to read more and more about caffeine. I um, stopped having it and recognized that I had been self-medicating with it. I'd been keeping myself able to live with too little sleep by resorting to coffee. And, um, and so I slowly but surely went off it altogether because if I cold turkey did, then I landed up with <laughs> headaches and feeling like I couldn't keep my eyes open. Um, and, and now I really can't stand coffee in my uh, caffeine. I love coffee. I'm a real, real lover of the taste of coffee, mm. but the slightest bit of caffeine in my body and I feel um, shaky and hyper-roused. And so it's not just that I can't sleep, but that I actually can't stand the feeling during the day. So it's been really interesting to go from having had maybe four or five cups of coffee a day, I'm ashamed to say, um, which did keep me going. Um, I used to get up at 
quarter to five in the morning to go running every morning and um it, and actually i had to tell the truth it wasn't good for me i needed to sleep an extra hour in the morning and then i could live without the coffee so i do think that uh you know we often don't realize how much coffee is keeping us awake and uh during the day and as Joni says, we don't, therefore don't realize how much is keeping us awake at night and perpetuating the cycle of mm. overstimulation and lack of sleep. So yeah. I'm you know, really honest about the fact that I think I was a bit of an addict and uh, I do have decaffeinated coffee now because I just love the taste and I'm aware that decaf has got 30% caffeine, but somehow as long as it's before one o'clock yeah. for me, yeah. 12 o'clock, I can, tolerate yeah. yeah so i mean that's just beautiful testament to knowing ourselves so mm. sometimes it does take you know easing ourselves off and then you know sensing into actually what is our body how's our body responding here mm. so it is um it's really important to know so that so that playing with that caffeine and your points around tea and green tea um it's really really important to um to not have that for eight hours before bed. So that's hugely important. The other um, biggies are sugar. So sugar can also just, you know, spark uh, all sorts of uh, domino effects in your body. Um, and sugar at night and, you know, vast amounts of sugar can also just play with your whole ecosystem and affect your sleep quite badly. And of course, there's sugar and alcohol. So some of the latest research that I've read, Sue, is that um, a glass of wine or a whiskey can reduce your deep sleep by about 14%. Um, and that's not dramatic, okay? So I don't say no alcohol, but uh, a glass is enough because two glasses can reduce that deep sleep by 39%. So it's, you know, it's I'm getting a lot of people saying, hey, Joni, you know, the way I relax is come home from a hard day collapse on that couch, you know, watch some sport or binge watch some Netflix and two or three whiskeys and then I sleep like a baby. Well, you could be sleeping like a baby, but not getting a restorative sleep. And what's the acid test? The acid test for me is, are you waking up naturally? And there's actually no better feeling than having had a good night's sleep and your body just starts to surface. And now in summer, of course, you surface hearing the, the beautiful birds chirping and you go like, hey, welcome this new day, as opposed to the, you know, being alerted by an alarm. So the two other things to be aware of are, are sugar and alcohol. And if I can just uh, put this into uh, the mix, you know, um, yesterday I got up um, relatively late and went for a beautiful cycle. And, and I just, I was meeting friends for um, brunch. So I didn't eat anything until probably 12 o'clock. And by the time I did eat, my blood sugar had tanked. And I felt the, asleep, the effect in my sleep last night because my blood sugar couldn't normalize itself for the whole rest of the day. Mm, mm. And, and I think that um, people need to really be mindful of their, their sugar levels, not just if they're consuming sugar, but in terms of how they eat, when they eat, and responding to their body's need for food, I'm not an intermittent faster myself. I know many people find it really works for them, but it does not work in my body. Um, but if you are an intermittent faster, be very mindful that you're not waiting till your blood sugar has already dropped too low and mm. then trying to eat because that you it takes many many hours for your body to find its homeostasis again because low blood sugar is actually an emergency in your body yeah. and so yeah. it puts your body into red alert and yeah. then you um you really can't uh, be in a relaxed state mm. of calm the whole rest of the day so yeah. um I, you know know your body i have a very sensitive one so i uh, can tell these things pretty easily but I think it's really important to get blood sugar right yeah that's exactly happened to me and I've got the double whammy of um, my blood sugar going to low and my blood pressure is always low so if those two things happen at the same time I'm <laughs> nowhere so I am I'm a big you know snacker so I've always got some dried fruit on hand some salty nuts some you know so if I feel that, and I now can sense when it's dropping too low, so I will definitely 
not allowed to drop too low because it's I just feel absolutely horrendous when it does mm. so to be mindful of that yeah yeah and you're a real self-preservationist I've seen you with your always a flask of something to drink exactly. and uh, and that sort of thing I'm, I'm, I'm terrible that way I never ever think of that sort of thing until it's too late <laughs> my children always say mom you never used to feed us until you were starving but uh, <laughs> I think we have to um we have yeah. to learn to manage ourselves and manage and maybe our- I'll just bridge off that because it's um that self-preservation part of me can really irritate me um when I'm I've been doing a lot of international travel lately and half of my suitcases good snacks you know and some you know actually some nutritious soups packet soups etc cetera, etc cetera. and I can I really can irritate myself going like really do I need all of this stuff like maybe I could just I've seen you Sue you travel very well with a backpack and I'm like I wish I could just be lighter in my traveling but on the other hand I found it really interesting sometimes um I was at a conference an innovation conference in Mauritius two weeks ago and it was interesting, I was MC on the Thursday and then I was MC and keynote speaker on the Friday. And the Thursday night, they had a cocktail party and that was going to be, you know, all the speakers and all the, the top clients meeting. And I know my body. So I'd been on stage all day and I was tired. And I thought, I'm not going to make this cocktail party. I'm really exhausted. So I said to the uh, convener, I said, I really would like to meet all your, your clients, et cetera, et cetera. But I think I'm going to make like half an hour of this cocktail party. He was quite irritated with me. And I said, look, you know, sleep is your superpower. I've got to be on stage for you all day tomorrow. So I am, I'm just drawing a line in the sand here. And I'm sorry that I'm upsetting you, but this is how it's going to work out. So I was at the cocktail party for half an hour and I came back to my room and I thought, thank goodness for all of these snacks, because I can't sleep if my tummy is empty. So I had, I had a kind of a buffet of snacks for the night. And then I woke up feeling fabulous the next day. And that's got a couple of little subtext stories, Sue, is that, you know, socially we might be out and it's really nice to meet new people or clients or whatever. And it's really knowing yourself and just knowing that we can get past that exhaustion phase and then you're at the cocktail party, you're waiting for all the nice trays of snacks to come out, you know, you have one or two drinks too many and then you go back to your room and you wide, you know, beyond tired. So it's being able to prioritize your sleep and say no matter what's happening around me is to honor that so that you don't get into that overtired state. And I'm very grateful then for my self-preservation nature that I can get back and have, you know, some good food. And also at the end of the day, and we'll get into some more book ending the end of the day now, but um, just to say the one thing that Ariana Huffington taught me that I have never forgotten since uh, March 2017 is that she says in her Sleep Revolution book is do not, do not have any leadership business books next to your bed. And um, I listened to her vociferously and I had had previous to that a mindset to say during the year, I love leadership books and anything to do with neuroscience. I mean, it's just, it's yummy for me. Like surely that's a good way to go to sleep. My year end holiday in December, when my toes are in the sand, I'm having a beach holiday, which is my preferred way to end the year. That's when I read novels. And I started swapping that out going, actually, no, I'm going to read leadership books during a day. But at night, I'm always going to read a good novel. So I am, um, you know, that just going back to that little scenario of coming back, having a nice little, you know, bunch of good snacks in my hotel room, and then, you know, having my shower and reading my my novel is was such a lovely way to, you know, just calm the brain down. And we've got to find those kinds of rituals that really work for you. But I would say one of the non-negotiables from a brain science perspective is a novel at night, something pleasurable to read, because it actually ignites your prefrontal left, um, cortex on, on this lateral ventricle side. So it makes you more creative and it just relaxes the whole ecosystem, which is really important. Mm, I love that. Just unwinds that coil of your brain. So, that, mm. you know, coiling it up and giving yourself new things, you've got to remember and action and tightens yes. the coil again oh. for sharing that and I, I i you know i'm listening to what you said about the choices you made because i think it is about 
knowing yourself first of all and second of all making your choices wisely about how you're going to live your life and what you're going to allow yourself and not allow yourself and as you well know uh, listeners and Joni I have just written a book called The Sweet Spot and in the sweet spot, it really is about navigating that space between being too disciplined, where mm. you can't allow yourself any fun and you can't have, you know, break your own personal rules and you're totally inflexible and being so flexible that you don't take care. And, yeah. and it's somewhere in that beautiful middle ground that you mm. have to find that place to choose. And, and it sounds like you got it absolutely right. Yeah. Doing your, yeah. your yeah. half an hour of the cocktail and, and then you know, succeeding the next day because dragging yourself through the next day wouldn't have been fun at all. Yeah. And, yeah, and then yeah. it's also to realize that, you know, it's never deprivation. You know, the next day, if you're at that meeting or that conference or whatever, those people that you had a quick hello to, if you think yeah. actually I'd love to know more about them, is you just sidle up to them at the tea times and lunchtime. So it's, you know, how to make that happen. The other um, book end part of my day, Sue, that end part of the day is really being, um, mindful around having again some natural light in my eyes so even if I'm working slightly late and when I say slightly late my brain does not work well after 8 p.m it's I am completely useless so because I know my circadian rhythm is more of a lark and not an owl um, I cannot write have meetings do anything late at night. It just is not like that. So I've had to work with that. And I will, you know, depending on what I'm doing with time zones, et cetera, but I will invariably, I will always finish my work before supper. So that is it. Then laptop is shut and that's it. So I then have got like, this is my evening time with my family or if I have friends around for dinner, this is the evening time with them. So you know, you've got to work out how you work. Some late night hours, obviously, are going to do a lot of their work at night, and that's okay. But the rule of thumb here is no blue light from your laptop, your mobile phone, or your TV for 90 minutes before bed. Yes, 60 to 90 minutes. It is absolutely imperative. So, you you know, you spoke earlier, you know, about people kind of relaxing in front of the TV. It's That is not the way to um, relax your brain because that blue light's going in and it's inhibiting the production of melatonin, which is um, the sleep hormone. So we've really, really, that is a kind of a, a rule for me. And I wear blue blockers as well. So I try, and I don't always remember, to be honest, it just depends where I am. But I try at the end of the day is to, as the sun has gone down and I'm putting overhead lights on in my lounge and wherever, is I put my blue blockers on because over lights from your ceiling or your lamps will also go into your brain and affect the production of melatonin. So that's really, really important is to kind of, how does your night start to unfold as the sun sets? And if I am working past sunset is I will take a two minute break. I've got a mini trampoline on my veranda um, of my office and I've got a stationary bike. And I will just sit on that or jump on my trampoline and watch two minutes of sunset again to get that, that sunset glow into my brain before I go to sleep. So those are parts of my nighttime routine. And um, I'm vociferous about no TV late at night. How do, what do you do, Sue? Uh, yeah, I, look, sometimes the only uh, sort of me time I get is just before I go to sleep. So um, I do negotiate with myself every now and again to watch a little bit of Netflix or whatever I might want to watch. Um, usually it's on my computer and I do use blue blockers when I watch it. And then I will always read before I go to sleep. Always, always, always. So um, I prefer not to watch Netflix before I go to bed, but I'm telling the truth sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I break my own rules and give myself a treat if I just really feel like I need to escape my life and all the stuff yeah. in my head then I love to watch somebody else's life and bury myself in that and I find it very very relaxing um, but then I'll switch it off and read for 20 minutes or something yes. like that before I go to sleep and um, and I find that that is acceptable but uh, far better is to watch television during the day and read for an hour before I go to sleep. Yeah. Well, I, I find, um, so if my husband, if we're on a Netflix series and he's really into it, 
we will watch it on we uh, we can't seem to get um netflix on our tv so we will watch it on my computer and we will watch it in the lounge so i think that's another thing to speak about is that the bedroom is for three things and three things only it's for sleep intimacy and reading so mm -hmm. we will also you know if we're watching a series we'll definitely watch and then we'll go and read i sometimes can't even make reading for 20 minutes because um i'll read two pages and then i've I feel done, you know. Um, so I'm going to speak a little bit about the bedroom um, and sleep. So I've mentioned the three things. Psychographically, I have also said to my family, my two children no longer live at home. But when they did, um, it was really interesting because as teenage girls, my teenage girls, sometimes the, the time of the day that they wanted to offload on me or tell me what a, you know, strict or whatever kind of mother that I was not allowing them to do X, Y, Z, to have these hectic, courageous conversations would be at night as I was going to sleep. And I would say, listen, girls, I'm happy to have this courageous conversation, but um, it's not going to be in my bedroom. So my bedroom literally is a timeout zone. Um, and I'm going to speak a bit about the ergonomics of your bedroom, but psychographically, I'd say, okay, so you want to have this hectic debate or you cross with me about something that I haven't delivered and should have done and didn't do properly, is we're going to go back into the lounge and have that. Because the minute I open my front door, I'm not having any hectic debate. And I would say the same to my husband if he was cross with me, it's like, let's have this hectic debate in the lounge. So I think it's really important is to have this triggers when you open your bedroom door, this is your calm down space. And it always is for me. It's my calm down space. I actually have got a little, that four, seven, eight breathing triggers. As I walk into my bedroom, I breathe in for four, hold my breath for seven and breathe out for eight. And it's automatic. I never have to remember to do that. It just is, this is my place of rest. So that is particularly important. Um, the other ergonomics around your bedroom is that if you don't have block out curtains, because a dark sleeping place is really important is then to wear a mask when you go to sleep. So I don't have lockout curtains in my bedroom. We've got blinds and um, I wear a mask every night going to sleep. And also because my husband reads longer than I do, I seem to these days only get through two or three pages. So I will go to sleep with a, a mask on. The other important part is to really have a cool bedroom if you can. So about 17 degrees Celsius is what your bedroom should be. So the body temperature, you want it to drop for that deep stage four sleep. And then your body temperature as morning comes, your body temperature increases. So the dark bedroom and the cool bedroom is really important. And the other thing is to remove clutter from your bedroom. I haven't quite got that right. Um, my bedroom is still too cluttered with, you know, I've got a bookshelf right next to my bed because I love books. Um, and all sorts of things, but it's it's really to reduce that clutter. So it, it just feels like that safe sanctitude. And building on that, people who um, wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning, the brain's a little frazzled and they're worried about things, the cognitive behavior therapy um, uh, advice we give, I'm a, I'm a CBT therapist for insomnia, is that you don't toss and turn in your bed and battle at that two o'clock in the morning time. Is your bed is for rest, reading, and um, intimacy. So to actually, if you are two o'clock in the morning where you've got that monkey mind going on, is to leave your bedroom and go to the lounge. And I've had to do this sometimes if I wake up with a monkey mind, as I've got a comfy blankie and I sit in the lounge, definitely don't look at my phone or put the TV on or any bright lights. And I'll take my novel to the lounge and then wait for that kind of nodding off feeling and then go, okay, I might journal a few things. I might just do a brain dump to get rid of some of the things that I'm anxious about. But then I'll go back to my bedroom when I feel a bit sleepy. So you've really got to mentally and cognitively associate your mattress with sleep as opposed to tossing and turning. And, and I love that, uh, I must say, it works for me so, so well to actually read if you are do have a monkey mind because it gives you that anchor for the mind. Uh, so if you've tried breathing and it doesn't help, try reading. And if that doesn't help, get out of bed. Yeah, and go and yeah. uh, toss and turn. Uh, not toss and turn, but be in the lounge 
before you come back. And I just want to add, as a, um, a sex coach, please don't confine intimacy to the bedroom. But yes, yes. <laughs> uh, intimacy is amazing for the bedroom. But I don't think it always should be and is good to have it just before you go to sleep. Because most of the time, at least one of you is too tired. And so um, I'm just throwing that little nugget yes, in because so many people leave it to bedtime and then they're just too tired, which means that weeks go by and they never get to it. So, oh, exactly. Joni, the good creator seems to have made a design flaw, if he or she will forgive me saying that, in that menopausal women who are going through such a lot of emotional trauma already, physical challenges and changes, land up being unable to sleep and I just can't understand why <laughs> poor menopausal women should be lumped with a sleep issue as well. Have you got some suggestions for when that um, a sleep challenge of menopause starts to set in? Mm. Anything um, different you've already yeah. said? Yeah, so I don't, I'm not, uh, I don't have deep, deep information on this. Um, what I have found is obviously with the, the body heating up during menopause is that cool room really does help. Um, and then I have just in my own menopausal journey been vociferous about, you know, blood tests and, and, and really making sure that I top up whatever hormones need to be topped up. And I know that's a whole nother debate, but it's um, the, the minute we layer that with anxiety um and should have, could have, this is terrible. It, it exacerbates everything. So it is a wave that you need to ride. And it's a, you know, it's a not forever wave. And it's just being very mindful of what your body's going through. And if there is a period of time that you're not sleeping as deeply as you want to, or you're just battling is again, it's, you know, how do you self-nurture in different ways to, to manage that, that turbulent time, the menopausal time. I think that's good advice. And I think the important thing is to acknowledge what's going on, even if it's yeah. this perimenopause, you know, and you find you're just not sleeping and mm. your doesn't feel quite the same as it used to, go and see your doctor and yes. decide what you're going to do about your hormones. Yeah. I think yeah. primrose oil, it does help, um, and magnesium, yeah. and uh, yeah, manage yourself well during the day. Yeah. Actually, on that magnesium note, is I have found a vast difference taking magnesium. And the research that I've done, Sue, is that magnesium is responsible for about 600 different processes in your body. There are eight different types of magnesium. So do some research, decide what you need, but that is a must that I have every day is magnesium. Um, so many people are magnesium deprived and that definitely, definitely does help with sleep. And there, there are a couple of brands out there that you know have got the different types of magnesium in one so just to go and research and see what what suits you but that's magnesium is an absolute must for sleep the other thing that i have found as well through my menopausal years and also um ongoing is that uh, that beautiful epsom salts bath before sleep is um, a way to go as well so that just really relaxing in a bath um is and and i find it's quite interesting in a bath I had one last night with some Dead Sea salts, which was lovely. And I um, I have this kind of association that my bath is just to read some really fun magazines. And it really is a, a really good fun switch off time. And then, you know, tucking into the grittiness of my yummy novel is what I do in bed. So it's kind of like, what are these different associations for yourself? What do you do? I don't bath as often as I'd like to. But uh, when I do, I've got an ozone bath mat which is also very helpful. I go like, oh, this is just like bliss. Why am I not doing this every night? Um, so it's, you know, to find those little treats and find the ways that we use self-nurture really, really well is important. But I love taking magnesium is important. And I love how you said, you know, start your day by tuning in and connecting with mm. and you and end your day in the same way. Um, I think that has to be a good idea for well-being of all types, but yeah. also for yeah. And that gratitude. So the same thing, whether it's in the bath or in the shower and my hand touches that left tap, the hot tap for me is um, it's gratitude at the end of the day. And I find very often that that gratitude, the morning gratitude is often something that I've seen that's beautiful. I've had a, you know, even a chat to someone while I'm, 
you know, walking. But to the end of the day, I'm often gratitude, I'm grateful, gratitude, grateful for some learnings. And it's like jeepers, you know, I dropped that ball again, or this was tough feedback that I received. So it's really um, making sense of what happened during the day. And thank goodness I know about that as opposed to someone didn't give me that feedback. So I find the book ending of the day, the the two parts, the, the one exercise that I do verbally and mentally and sifting out is what am I grateful for? And if I'm in the bath, as I'm watching that water run down um, the, the hole in the bath is um, I'm like, I'm glad some of that's washed away because that was a tough conversation I had to have and it, I didn't enjoy it. And I'm glad that I don't have to have that again or, you know, that I have addressed whatever I needed to address. So it's really, you know, um, there's a beautiful saying, let me hope I get it right, um, a ruffled mind makes a restless pillow. So, you know, how we end the day and how we let some things go is very, very important. Uh, and, and it's an active exercise. It's not yeah. going to happen if you don't do it actively. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much so. Sure, Joni, we could carry on talking all day, but uh, I just want to um, ask one last question. You know, there's a war in Israel and in Gaza at the moment, and there is another war in the Ukraine. And in South Africa, we have oh, so many challenges and problems. These things are not conducive to sleep. Have you got just a nugget for us as we sort of come to a close of this conversation? What can people do to help themselves manage all this anxiety and stress that is around and abounding in the world and mm. must fill our minds? Mm. The one nugget I would share is just to get a piece of paper and draw three concentric circles. And the 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 bull's eye circle, the one in the epicenter is what can you control? So we can't control the Euro Ukraine, Russian, Gaza, um, Israeli. I just come back from Armenia. They've got a war with uh, Azerbaijan. There are so many wars going on, you know, and as you say in South Africa, you know, when we're talking about these thousands of people dying, we also forget in South Africa, 27,000 people died last year from homicide. And those are just the, you know, ones we know of. So, so the epicenter is what can I control, which is your attitude, which is how you feed your system, your body, which is how you sleep, blah, blah, blah. So what can I control? The next circle is like, what can I influence? And, you know, certainly I always look to my children, you know, have I helped them with, you know, the right values in life and, you know, help them find their own, I'll use your beautiful title of your book, Sue, their own sweet spot. So they swim in their own lane and they're, you know, gutsy in their own way. So what am I influencing? And then my third and outer circle is, yes, I am concerned. I actually lived in Israel for a year um, after university. So, you know, I watch all of these things quite um, attentively and I am concerned, but it's things that I cannot control. So I just use that concern, influence and control three concentric circles to make, help me to self-manage because it's turbulent and it's, it's horrifying. It really is incredibly sad what's going on. And especially, you know, if you are Muslim or Jewish or, you know, it, it's it's tearing at your heart and it's making you feel vulnerable and defensive. Mm. That's very hard to sleep with. It really is. And mm. I'm seeing so many of my patients coming in with jaw clenching and headaches and inflammation and pain from the stress and anxiety. So... I do think trying to manage your mind as best you can with whatever hack or technique you find works for you. But I love Joni's one, deliberately categorizing things for yourself and bringing attention to what you can do something about and trying to let go, at least while you sleep, of the things that you can't make a difference to. Yeah, thank you, Joni. Thank you so much for your pearls of wisdom, for your insight, information, deep, deep, deep knowledge and uh and just for sharing it so generously as you always do that's one thing i know about Joni petty she is literally uh the most generous person i think i've ever met so thank you for sharing with us being with us and uh, we look forward to having another conversation maybe next time we can chat about resilience 
yeah, let's do that. Let's look at, um, I think a good conversation, Sue, that not a lot of people are having is that leg of resilience called purpose. You know, how do you um, self-manage? And it's not, you know, lifelong purpose, but it's also, you know, purpose for the day, purpose for the week, purpose for the month. Um, it's really important in terms of your own resilience. Wonderful. And and part of your route to well-being. So yes. we will definitely schedule a chat for that. And uh, knowing Joni and I, it'll take at least five or six months before we can get it together. <laughs> let's not hope. Let's, let's, uh, let's uh, make sure that doesn't take five or six months. <laughs> thank you for your time. And thank you, everyone, for your attention and for listening. Please remember... If you think this is going to be useful to someone you know, please share the love, share the information. This information can change people's lives, and that's what we really want. Take care and have a beautiful day. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Route to Wellbeing. I hope that this episode has been really useful and helpful for you. Thank you to the team who brought it into being and to our special guests who so generously gave of their time and their insights. Please remember to share it with all in your network who you think it can help. Sharing help that really helps is what makes the world go round.